Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. If you're new with us, my name is Mike, one of the pastors here on staff. We're delighted you're with us. Um, and we are in the middle of a, a series of conversations on the book of Revelation, and we are in the middle of like the thickest, most dense material in the history of dense material. And oh my goodness, a, a friend of mine last week playfully said, why do we have to go through this? Why do we, why do we have to know this? And, it, and I think it's a question that resonates with us all. Part of the reason though, and, and coincidentally enough, I, this shows up on my desk this week. Here it is, the coming world apocalypse and how to escape it. And it's, it's, a, it's a rider on a white horse, it's death with a sickle, everything's on fire. And, um, and this is the reason we're going through this material, all right? Because, because, thank you, because um, as, as, as great uh, as, and well-intentioned as many Christians are about how to approach the book, um, this book has been so misused and held captive to one particular strand of interpretation and that holds us, holds over us this sense of fear um, and anxiety about our future. And I just don't think that's at all what the purpose of the book was. Now, you don't have to buy what I'm saying. There's so many great scholars out there of all different brands. But the reason we're going through the dense stuff, because we're talking about beasts and 666, and we're going to talk about Babylon today, the reason we're doing that is because our imaginations have been held captive to a particular interpretation that has, has produced a lot of fear within the Christian community. So this one is going to be possibly the last of the super, super dense ones. Next week will be dense, but not super dense, right? So this will be like Susie's pancakes today, right? Thick. <laughs> tasty, needing syrup. So anyway, um, if you're new, I, there's no way I can catch you up. All I can say is, here's a chart I made. <laughs> yep, and so next slide. There, there it is, you're caught up. Now, in chapter, from chapter 6 through chapter 19, we meet... Um, we meet six seals in chapter six that lead to an event called the day of the Lord. We talked about a couple of weeks ago. The question then becomes, well, who can stand when the day of the Lord comes? The answer is in chapter seven, 144,000 plus a great multitude of saints can stand when the day of the Lord comes. Then in chapters eight and nine, we meet the seventh seal and the seventh seal turns out to be seven trumpets. We take a break in chapter 10 to talk about a little scroll and 11, uh, we talk about two witnesses, and we're going to talk about that next week. Then we get into the seventh trumpet, another version of the day of the Lord. Then we meet, we take an interlude to meet the great powers that are being judged behind the nation. The woman and the dragon, the woman is not one of the great powers, but the dragon and the two beasts, we talked about that last week. The whole world is worshiping the beast, and, and, and all of that comes out in um, expressions that are to either be used exclusively of Caesar propaganda or the worship of God, but not both. 
We meet seven angels. It's an odd section. It's just seven angels who bring seven plagues, but we're not told what they are. Then we have seven bowls, another version of the day of the Lord. Now today, we're in chapter 17, 18, and 19, talking about the judgment of Babylon. So let's meet Babylon. Shall we go to Genesis chapter 4? Now, <coughs> that's a big wind-up. Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, things are beautiful. Genesis 3, there is this colossal mistake that humanity keeps, not only fell into once, but keeps falling into and the ripples of that sin kind of echo throughout all of culture in Genesis 3 through 11. The first murder happens in Genesis 4, right? Cain is jealous of Abel, puts him to death. God confronts Cain. Um, and then, um, you know, Cain is fearful for the results of the judgment. God says, but I will actually protect you. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence, lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife. We can talk about that later. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a what? So one of the things, the founder of the first city, symbolically, I think, in the biblical narrative, is a guy who was exiled for murder. And then we meet in this city a guy named Lamech, Lamech. Lamech said to his multiple wives, you weren't supposed to have those, but here we meet the first polygamist, and there are their names, listen to me, and he addresses them as wives of Lamech. I'm gonna go home, wife of Mike, may I interest you in some lunch? Wives of Lamech. Hear my words, I have killed a young man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech should be avenged 77 times. Now, this is a really quick jet tour through the combination of a city being built by a guy who was exiled for murder, and then the violence escalating. Because one of his descendants is this guy, Lamech, who says the seven times that Cain would be avenged, that's not enough. I've already murdered somebody, and anyone who touches me should be avenged 77 times. So you're seeing, the biblical writers are just showing you things keep escalating. If we were to keep looking in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 6, the whole earth is filled with violence. And God comes and literally undoes creation, allows chaos to be reasserted in the created order and really destroys it all except for one family. That family turns out to be pretty dysfunctional, shocker, in Genesis, and we realize sin is not going away anytime soon, even with the great restart. So now, now we have uh, Genesis 11, and we meet something called the Tower of Babel. The whole world had one language and common speech. As people moved eastward, remember the command given to the people was to fill the earth. So part of the command was to fill the earth and they were moving eastward. They found a plain in Shinar, you know where that is, and they settled there. Now were they supposed to settle there altogether? The answer is no. They said to each other, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now remember the word brick. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, the way the biblical story unfolds, this is a technological advance. 
Instead of cutting stones, bricks, you can manufacture them quickly, uniformly, and so now we could build bigger buildings, all right? So just note that. They're building a city with brick and tar and mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city. So again, there's that word, a city, with a tower that reaches to the heavens. These, these cities were called ziggurats. They're, they prefigure the uh, Egyptian pyramids. They usually had a place to sacrifice at the very top, so you would sacrifice close to the gods in the heavens. So let us make a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. So the image-bearing dignity and power and authority given to the humans is now being used to ex- for self-exaltation. Make sense? Otherwise, oh, I'm sorry. David, go back if you would. Let us build a great tower, make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. In other words, God had said, fill the earth. They said, nope. Next. The Lord came down to see the city, the tower the people were building, and he's concerned. If as one, per, a people speaking the same language that begin to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. When we get to a Genesis series next year, we'll talk about the language that's being used here. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that we not understand each other. Next. So the Lord scattered them from over from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Now here's the important part, next. This is why it was called what? Now, this is the only place this word isn't translated Babylon, okay? So you can look at textual notes in your Bible or online. This is the city of Babylon. This is the founding of the city of Babylon. Okay, Babel rhymes with a Hebrew word for confusion because God throws their language into confusion and that's why it's used here. But thousands of other places, the same word is translated Babylon. So what you're seeing is that the pinnacle of human destructiveness in Genesis 3 through 11 comes when they form a city to exalt themselves. And that city is named Babylon. You with me so far? That becomes minorly important later on in the biblical story. And the fact that the founding of the city of Babylon is pointed to as the culmination of human sinfulness means that it becomes an archetype. So other things will be called Babylon even if they're not Babylon. Make sense? All right, you see where this train's going, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's go to Exodus. And... um, In Exodus, God calls from the scattered nations a couple, a family, Abraham, and um, creates, in in, in accordance with his promise, creates a great nation from them. The, The nation finds themselves in Egypt, enslaved to Pharaoh, and we pick it up in Exodus 1. Then a new king to whom Joseph, who becomes a central character at the end of Genesis, meant nothing, this new king came to power in Egypt. Next. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will, they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put what? Okay, now, just tuck that word away. 
Some of your Bibles have it taskmasters. Some of you have like overseers. The word literally is translated slave master. This is the first instance of mass slavery in the biblical story. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with what? Forced labor, tuck that phrase away. One of, the th- one of the ways the Bible communicates emphasis is it repeats things. And it does it sometimes very subtly, sometimes very, very blatantly. Like if I wanna say God is really holy, in Hebrew you don't underline or like bold face type, you repeat holy, holy, holy. That's, God is like ridiculously holy, all right? So I'm drawing attention to words and phrases that are gonna be used later in the story that if you've got your your Old Testament ears on, you go, oh, okay, this is referencing something earlier. So they put slave masters over them and pressed them with forced labor and they built storage cities for Pharaoh. Next, the more they were pressed, the more they multiplied. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Next, They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in what? Now there's a phrase. A city being built with brick and mortar. Now again, in English, we're like, oh, well, that's cool. And and we just sort of skip over that. But again, these are literary masterpieces that are put together with a great deal of attention. So a brick and mortar city is just a, a clue. Oh, oh, here we go again, right? Yes, what are we building again? Babylon. So they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, God comes, and we looked at this two weeks ago, he comes and and liberates the people through the Exodus, the series of plagues. Remember at the end of uh, those plagues, the Israelites refer to that day, that day of liberation, and that gets turned into a concept called the day of the Lord that we looked at a couple weeks ago. I know you all remember it exactly, but you can go back if you want more on it. The day of the Lord is when God intervenes in human history to bring low a nation that has exalted itself to divine status and is oppressing um, other innocent people as a result. So the day of the Lord comes against Egypt. The shocker, as we've talked about before, is that that Israel becomes a form of Babylon too. We meet Solomon in 1 Kings, and for the first several years of Solomon's reign, he's amazing. Solomon, I'll give you anything. Great, I'll take wisdom. And God blesses him, and and the nation grows in wealth. It's a unified kingdom at, at, at first, and they're, nas- I mean, they're internationally known as a place of abundance and luxury and wealth and blessing. And then we read this, 1 Kings 5. King Solomon conscripted. What's that mean? Does that mean ask for volunteers? <laughs> no, he forced them. Labor, he conscripted laborers from all over Israel, 30,000 men. Later on he says, that guy's name. No, keep it up there. That guy's name was in charge of the what? And then later the text says, Solomon also had 3,300 taskmasters or slave masters, the same word that's used in the Exodus narrative, who supervised the building of the temple and his palace. 
Now, if you're paying attention, what, what do we got here? We got another Babylon. And the shocker is that it's the people of God now doing the oppressing. I know this doesn't happen today, but it's just a shocker nevertheless, right? And so Solomon, man, Solomon gets into all kind of trouble next. <clears throat> he spends seven years building the temple with slave labor and then 14 years building his own palace. Okay, note to self, you should never, never have that ratio. That's the first ratio, if you know what I'm talking about on, on the Twitter. <clears throat> Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh as a gift totally destroys a Canaanite city and hands that empty city to Solomon and Solomon accepts it as a dowry. Okay, next. Solomon very famously, do we have more Solomon? Sweet Dave? We do? Oh, we do not. Solomon very famously, 300, uh, 300 concubines, 700 wives. He goes chasing after false gods. And then all of a sudden, if you read the prophets, the prophets start threatening Israel with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming against them. Why? Because they've become the latest iteration of Babylon. Are you with me so far? Okay. All of this is introduction. Yep. Let's go to Revelation 17. <laughs> oh, now, part of what we're doing in this this thick section of Revelation from chapter six through chapter 19 is we're selecting themes and showing how those themes work themselves out. So we've looked at the day of the Lord, we've looked at the dragon and the beasts, now we're gonna look at Babylon, all right? And if you're wanting to know what's this book about, here most expressly is the tie to the city of Rome. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came to me and said, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. Oh, okay. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. Now, in the Hebrew prophets, if you are idolatri idolatrously, is that right? Sure. If you're idolatrously aligned with a false god, Often the prophets will describe that as adultery. It's a, it's a metaphor. So God mar marries his people and then accuses them of cheating when they worship false gods. So the idea of a prostitute and the idea of adultery here is talking about illicit spiritual allegiances. Okay? So with back, back young man, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. The inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adultery. So they were, they were playing into the false worship of this. And they were benefiting from it. Next. The angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now we've met a woman before in chapter 12 that stood for Mary. Now we're meeting another woman this is the same woman we just were introduced to. She's sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now, do you remember from last week? What are beasts? Kingdoms. What are horns? Kings, right? 
and it had blasphemous names. We've looked at some of the blasphemous names of the Caesar propaganda of the day. So if you're reading this in the first century, you, you kind of already know who we're talking about, but just in case, next. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, colors of royalty. She was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. Luxury and excess kind of covered her. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adultery. So the, the benefit of the allegiance between the false religious system and the economic systems of the world. That's what we're talking about. That's what's being named adultery. That the kings of the earth benefited from their relationship to whoever this is. Next. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Well, not so much. (laughs) Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of abominations of the earth. Okay, well, that's pretty not subtle, but John's confused by this. Next. I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. So she'd been oppressing God's people. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. That's the great multitude we've met several times. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? (laughs) I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. Next. Yes, of the world, and be astonished when they see the beast. Sorry, because it once was, is not, and yet will come. Okay, that, boy, that's an interesting thing we don't have time for. Now, nope, go back. Go forward. Right there. Dave, thank you. Thanks for putting up with me, man. I know this is insane. This calls for a mind with wisdom. In other words, John is telling his audience, you can figure out who this is. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is no doubt who we're talking about when we talk about a city built on seven hills. That was Rome beyond a shadow of a doubt. Next. The the seven heads are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. And there's tons of debate over who we're talking about here. But it doesn't matter in a sense because this is the royal power expressed through the emperor. Next. The beast, who once was, now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. Great, no idea what that's referring to. Next. The ten horns are ten kings, and and scholars, or at least the ones I study, are, are relatively convinced that this next phrase means these are kings from other nations than Rome who benefit from Roman power. So they've not yet received a kingdom, but for, who, but for one hour, which means just a short time, will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Next. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb. The lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Boom. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and languages. And then, the woman you saw is the what? Yeah, who's the great city? Yeah, Rome. Now, pull up some coins. 
I want to introduce you to the goddess Roma. Okay, she is on the right. I think it's Tiberius on the left. The goddess Roma was the deification of the city. She stood for stability, peace, and order all achieved through violence. Her great gift to the world, her great gift to the world was the fact that commerce could be conducted without warfare because of Roman roads and Roman seaways. But notice, if you count, how many hills is she sitting on? Yeah. I mean, just so we're clear, like this is not a subtle maneuver in the book of Revelation. So who have we been talking about the whole time? I would argue it's Rome. Now, does this mean there can be beasts in the future that have to be dealt with? Of course. That's why I don't think what Revelation's doing is giving us a forecast for our calendars, but rather giving us archetypes so that we can discern our current day. I think that is a massively important point. Next, um, Peter refers to those in Rome and he uses the word, she who is in Babylon, the church chosen together with you sends her greetings. So this, I just want to make sure, this is not a subtle reference. Now, in chapter 18, and stick with me, this is the really thick, and if you're like, oh, this is the thick stuff? I know. When, when Israel was defeated, no, when Egypt was defeated and Israel was liberated, the first thing the people did in Exodus 15 was sing a song of triumph. When Babylon is defeated, we're now gonna sing songs of triumph. And that is all of 18. Here's what I want you to notice though, okay? Here's the part Americans miss. What's being condemned isn't the individual sin of individual Romans or the individual emperors. What's being condemned is the entire structure of a nation state that exalts itself with divine prerogatives. We want to say, and and I understand this, I was raised in this, that we want to say sin only is an individual thing. And that's just not, that's not at all the biblical teaching. Sin starts with an individual choice, but then in Genesis it ripples. Now we've got cities. Now we've got whole communities exalting themselves. Now we've got communities using slave labor. Like, that matters. So pay attention to what's being condemned here. And it's not just a bunch of individual sinners who need to go to heaven. It's when all those sinners congregate together, they create something bigger than just some of the individual sinners. That's what Babylon is. So, we're gonna sing some triumph songs, ladies and gentlemen. I hope our worship team will consider these in the future. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had a great authority. The earth was illuminated by his splendor. I'm gonna zip through these. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. If you're Jewish, there's no way to rejoice more greatly than to just say, this is so toxically unclean, it will never rise up again. Next, for all of the nations, they have drunk of the maddening wine of her idolatry. 
The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Next. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you do not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. That's exactly Exodus language. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she is given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, Roma boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Do you see the arrogance of that? Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her, uh, in her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn for her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and say, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo. And here's the list of cargo. And notice what's at the end. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, of course, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, frankincense, of wine, olive oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings being sold as what? <sighs> We see why she's being called Babylon, correct? The same, it's, Rome is just another instance of the same empire building. Whew. What's being condemned here is the economic practices of the empire. The kings and the merchants who benefited will say, the fruit you long for has gone from you. All the luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. That's like the crypto guy this week. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far, far off from her. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads. With weeping and mourning, they will cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. Now, what's being condemned? What's being condemned here, really? The, the, the combination of idolatry, economic power, and military power and all who benefit from it. Now, I'm making a biblical point, not a political one. This is just what Babylon is, and this is just what Babylon does. And what's fascinating is if you, you take all this imagery and you compare it to Old Testament visions of the fall of ancient Babylon, 
ancient Tyre, an ancient, um, oh, what is it? Is it Sodom? Um, the, John is using all this imagery that has been used to describe the fall of other great cities to describe the fall of Rome. So it's just John's way of saying this is the latest iteration. Remember, he's writing to seven flesh and blood churches who are in a distinct minority, a politically vulnerable situation, and they're saying this magnificent empire where all the nations of the world are benefiting and growing rich and acclaiming this is divine, all of this is gonna go away the same way Egypt went away, the same way ancient Babylon went away, the same way ancient Israel got judged and was sent into exile. Next. More rejoicing. Next. Now, as a symbol, I was, I was showing Kevin this yesterday, as a symbol of the great luxury of Rome, there is a mountain outside the boundaries of the ancient city that is 200,000 square feet of nothing but pottery that could have been used again but was destroyed and thrown out. These are called amphoras, way to carry wine or oil or whatever. 200,000 square feet of a mountain of nothing but ancient pottery. A garbage dump of just one kind of garbage. I mean, so they dig down and it's nothing but shards of pottery. And modern historians point to that, extrapolate on how much actually had to come into Rome to produce something like that. And it's astronomical. And then lastly, and we're so close to be none, so close. We'll just take a snapshot of chapter 19. I know, I heard some yawning. I get it. Next week will be great. We're gonna talk about the rapture. It's gonna be awesome. It's our text. <laughs> then the heavens celebrate over the fall of Babylon. I heard what sounded like a great multitude. This is straight from Revelation 4 and 5. Like the roar of rushing waters like, and loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who's his bride? Church, the people of God. They're given fine linen, bright and clean to wear. Fine linen, just in case we've missed it. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Sweet. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. Now, in the next several weeks, we are going to meet a new Jerusalem that in every way is the opposite of Babylon. We're gonna meet a pure, God's holy bride that is in every way the opposite of the great prostitute described in Revelation. So what John is setting up Siri, stop listening. (laughs) So what John has done, as he's done throughout the whole book, is he set up a choice. 
He's pierced the propaganda of the Roman Empire. Roma was this beautiful warrior goddess. And John's like, no, 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 she's, she's actually incredibly immorally wicked. And the emperors presented themselves as the great benefactors over the earth. And no, no, they're actually just spokespersons for the dragon. <coughs> and Roman priests dressed themselves up as the imperial cult the commanding worship. And they actually, you're just horns on the head of a dragon. I mean, he just pierces all of the nonsense going on in Rome and says, this is just another iteration of the Babylon that has oppressed God's people. And so the question for us, <laughs> not shockingly, let me go to the question for us. I'm working on it. That is the question for us. What is the question for us? No. <laughs> I knew I had a quote that I wanted to make sure I got right, and I'm not going to use it. Uh, the question for us is very simply, if Babylon isn't a one-time thing, and we know that God is going to defeat all the Babylons forever. That's the next chapter. Chapter 20 is when everything gets thrown into this large lake of fire and destroyed. How is it that we're in partnership with Babylon now? That's the question for the church. Not only individually, but communally. Because Babylon represents certain values. Right? The kingdom represents oftentimes different values. So like, I, would, I mean, I can think of a ton of ways. So very early in my life, not early, but in, in when I was in career chasing mode, I would only invest in people who could do something back for me. You know what I mean? Like they knew other people or I considered them like socially up there. And so I would only give time to people who could benefit me. Now that's a tiny thing, but that is Babylon. Guess who wrecked that? My son, Seth, if you don't know him, he has Down syndrome, and he just is a prophetic witness against the powers and principalities who define human life in terms of effectiveness. Oh. He is the bearer of the kingdom. My goodness. But that's, so, so none of this is a shot at America. See, we hear this and we're like, oh, you know, now we're talking politics and oh, you gotta vote this way. This is the work of the church, no matter what empire it sits in, to simply ask the question, where does the culture around us call normal the values of Babylon? And where should the church live in conflict with those values? So when we talk about slavery in America, we're not doing it because we're woke people jumping on the latest liberal fad. What an awful thing to say. This is straight from the heart of the text. Empires oppress. Where have we oppressed? That's not to say we can't love our country and be so happy and be proud of the people who've served to defend it 
and celebrate 4th of July. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with being a church that simply asks the questions, God, where have we embraced the posture of Babylon? That's it. And that should be asked whether you're in China or whether you're in Australia, 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 or Africa, or as it turns out, we sit, among, we sit in the middle of a global superpower who is incredibly wealthy. And hallelujah, I love living here. This isn't about that, but this is about allegiance to Jesus beyond any national identity. So that's it. So as Christians, the reason we sing and the reason we open the text and the reason we take the Lord's Supper and the reason we pray and the reason we're generous is because we're, ca- we're creating a counter community. We want a taste of New Jerusalem now while we live among the Babylonians of our day. Are you with me? <sighs> Kevin, you, should we do questions? It's 10. I know, right? Oh my, he said, oh my. I think we all can agree with that. Is there, is there uh, any in the room? I've got some on the line, but is there, I, yeah, I mean, I can answer the ones that are on the text line. As long as they're quick, they're not like these long, drawn-out commentaries. We're good. Yes, yes. Back here, back here and then uh, over here. Real quick. <laughs> Might be too long, actually. Um, I love give, it. Given that we all participate in benefiting from currency differences throughout the world. Is that ever considered a form of enslaving? You know, like all uh, yeah. the products in our, our pockets, iPhones, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. many things we benefit from the fact that there's such a reduced balance and wage and that kind of thing. Yeah. That might be too, too much. But No, I don't know enough about that. And that's part of the issue is that there, there's this whole thing happening where I'm just, I've just always been told, listen, we're the good guys. And we are, and we're not always. And so, but, but see, the point isn't whether or not that is a specific instance of injustice. The point is you've asked a question that we don't normally ask in a church community. How do we benefit And how do we participate? That's it. That's all we're asking. So I don't know the answer to that question at all, but the fact that you've posed it so specifically, I take to be a really good and healthy thing. When we're here, just real quick, guys. You guys are amazing. Sorry, uh, I'll keep it quick. So there's a net effect for this for all of humanity, I would guess. Um, The world's gotten a lot wealthier a lot quicker over the last 40, 50 years. I wanted to see, I mean, I, I'm thinking of many, many countries that would fit this, this bill yeah. in some form or another. Yeah. Uh, where, where does it end? I mean, specifically, there, there are, I mean, think about China from the 80s to now. Right. You know, the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, right. it's, um, yeah. then again, they raised a billion people out of poverty. You know, right, over the last right, right, years. right, right, right. I would imagine that, um, you know, the net effect is that we're all a lot wealthier over the next 50 years and... The, the gap gets a lot wider. Right. Um, when, when are we just one global Babylon? Right. Right. Where's the book? Yes. Yes. 
That's such a great question. And I don't have any idea about the answer to that specific question. I just don't. I do know it does end. And that's where Revelation is pivoting to. There's this great scene where Jesus comes with blood already on his robe and he wages war against the beast. And then the beast and death and Satan and all of it's thrown into a fire to be destroyed. So all of these Babylons are historical instances of God delivering people out of them and calling to be faithful in them until we reach the final ultimate day of the Lord when it's all dealt with. For me, I, and I don't know, I, I think more about myself than I do China or other places. And that's not bad. I mean, I think that's a, a great question. I'm constantly thinking, where am I placing myself above people Where am I exalting myself? Where am I participating in ideologies, ideologies or practices? Rocky, you gotta hold on to that bottle. Where am I participating in practices? That's Sam, Sam's over there like a proud father, like yes, that's my son. Where am I participating in those things? And that, and, 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 And I love, I love that you're asking it in economic terms. And we're not doing this because we're just weird people. We're doing this because we have a citizenship that trumps every other citizenship. Love it. All right. You have one more, Sam? And then, and then we're going we're gonna to practice in some creative resistance. Uh, just a little throwback just to last week. I, I've, I can't, I'm wrestling through the 1,260 days, three, yep. time times, half a time. 42 months, because it's referenced multiple times. Yes. Do, is there a time, I'm trying to, and I don't know if, do we have a time in Babylonian history where we're seeing a three and a half year period when something happened? Because there's whole theological debates about, Absolutely. we're still waiting for three and a half years. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. So and then you have, you have, yeah, 40 weeks of sevens and 70 weeks of sevens. And yeah, we can have a field day. So first of all, there are people who are much smarter than me who disagree about whether or not we take those things literally or symbolically. As we've said, I'm on the symbolic train simply because of how the number is used in Daniel, where it originates, and the type of literature Revelation is. So, and, and, and the question then is, why does it use different kinds of numbers? And that's a really juicy one that we do not have time for. But I love it. Look at you referring back, man. All right. So here's what we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to sing some songs. We are going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to pray together, and we're going to reflect. And here's the prompt I would love for you just to wrestle with. We have stations around the room where you can find the Lord's Supper. You're all invited. <laughs> love it. <laughs> we have stations around the room where there are pieces of paper where people will write down prayer requests. And, and please do that. I mean, we are honored to pray with you and for you. But today, I just wondered if you would I just ask the question, where am I participating in the value system of Babylon? And that can be as big or as small as whatever it is that comes to mind. But let's just, and then I want you to take the bread and the cup as the commitment to stand against that participation and the prayer to participate in the dynamics of New Jerusalem, that we might be a taste of what's coming. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, would you form us into a community, God, that sees the world the way it is, 
sees and loves people the way that you do, sees that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities that hold the world captive, and that discerns together ways in which we can simply promote the beauty of Jesus of Nazareth. To that end, we need the fullness of your spirit to fall among us. We're grateful to have these conversations together in the name of our Christ and for his purposes, amen.